0: This episode is brought to you by Burlap and Barrel, a public benefit corporation working directly with smallholder spice farmers around the world to source unique, beautiful spices for professional chefs and home cooks. This week on a special bonus episode of Meetin and 3 we find out how Brexit could be changing the way that Brits eat. If you're not getting your food from the European Union, where Britain gets 30% directly, well, where are you going to get it from? As I put very succinctly, buh-bye fresh peaches from Italy, hello tinned peaches from Florida. bye bye fresh oranges, hello tinned oranges. bye bye free-range beef, hello hormone-injected beef. Tune in to hear about the UK's struggle to stabilize its food system on Meat and 3, HRN's Weekly Food News Roundup, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome journalist and wine critic Matt Kepman. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Matt about Santa Barbara Wine Country, what's happening this year at the Santa Barbara Culinary Experience and we'll hear Matt's Julia moment. Stay with us, we'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Two things about Julia that are pretty well known are that she loves Santa Barbara and she loved wine. Now her love for Santa Barbara actually went back to her childhood as Santa Barbara and the surrounding Southern California coastline was a popular summertime escape for many Pasadena families, like Julia's. An appreciation for wine is really something Julia discovered from her time in France. But fortuitously, the tremendous growth in the American wine industry coincided with Julia's return to the United States. While winemaking didn't take hold as early in the Santa Barbara area as it did in Northern California, pioneers like Richard Sanford discovered the region had an ideal wine-growing climate, and the rest is now history. By the time Julia returned full-time to Santa Barbara later in her life, the marriage of one of her favorite places to live and one of her favorite beverages was blossoming. Someone who both knows his wine and knows the Santa Barbara wine region well is journalist Matt Ketman. Matt is a senior editor at the Santa Barbara Independent and a contributing editor for Wine Enthusiast where he reviews more than 200 wines each month and covers the culinary culture of the Central Coast and Southern California, which is our exact topic for today. He's the author of the soon-to-be-published comprehensive guide, Vines and Vision, The Winemakers of Santa Barbara County. We know him best through his generous service on the Advisory Committee for the Santa Barbara Culinary Experience, which is organized in partnership with the Foundation and is happening March 13th to 15th, 2020. Check out all the details on sbce.events. He joins us today to share the inside track on Santa Barbara wine and the Santa Barbara culinary experience. Welcome to the podcast, Matt.
1: Thanks for having me, Todd.
0: It's our pleasure. It's really nice to be so here. So let let's start with some context. Can you kind of help us put the Santa Barbara wine region into the sort of national wine scene? Where where does it sit, and how does it measure up?
1: Um, you know, I'm, I'm biased. I live here and I kind of cut my teeth on, uh, on drinking Santa Barbara wine. But uh, in my opinion, um, we are making some of the best wine, certainly in the country, if not in the world, uh, and especially uh, for the prices that are still a, a little bit lower, if not much lower than places such as Napa and even Sonoma. Um, so I think on a general national scale, um, we represent still quite a bit of value. Um, and, uh, you know, really some, some really excellent styles of wine. The, really, the story you'll hear if you if you come to a tasting room in Santa Barbara, almost any tasting room is going to tell you this initial story, which is that uh, Santa Barbara County is the only place on the west coast of the entire Americas where the mountains are turned east to west rather than north to south. So if you think about it from Alaska to, to Chile, the mountains are all running north to south, and so they block the interior valleys. Uh, from, from, the ocean, from the direct ocean influence. Um, but in Santa Barbara, the mountains, thanks to San Andreas Fault and you know, geologic history, have turned, and so they open onto the ocean uh, near Lompoc and Santa Maria. And so that means you have this incredibly cool influence on the far western side of the valley. But as you creep up the San Inez and Santa Maria Valleys, um, it gets warmer and warmer and warmer as you go. And so over the course of about 30 miles, you're getting almost a degree difference um, as you go inland. And so that means you can grow, you know, cool climate loving varieties like Pinot Noir and Chardonnay uh, on the west end. But you can also grow warmer loving uh, grapes like Cabernet and Sauvignon Blanc on the east end. And so you have this, uh, you know, really amazingly diverse uh, display of of wines uh, and wine styles uh, that is really kind of unrivaled anywhere in the world. So if you like, if you like Pinot and your spouse likes Cabernet, um, and your cousin likes Syrah, you can all find something happy uh, here in, in Santa Barbara. So it's really as diverse a wine region as there is on the planet, really. And I think that's not that's not just a subjective take. That's, I think, a pretty objective um, understanding at this point. Uh, so that's, I mean, that's what really makes this especially unique here.
0: Well, and that's what I was going to ask. Do, do you feel like, obviously, you're based in Santa Barbara and while well, you write nationally, like, for wine enthusiasts, do you feel like your colleagues who are not Santa Barbara biased, do you now recognize the the sort of, you know, elite, whether it's world-class or not, the competitive nature of the wines coming out of Santa Barbara? Uh,
1: definitely recognize the competitive nature. I mean, I think it's always, uh, it remains a work in progress. I mean, part of the the good thing and the bad thing here is that many of the wineries are extremely small compared to what you see in Napa and Sonoma. Uh, even like the Washington state, the wineries tend to be much bigger. So they're only making, you know, a few thousand cases uh, a year. And so the wine doesn't get out a lot of the area. Um, It'll get to LA, it'll get to San Francisco. And to some extent it'll get to New York, but you know, our broad distribution wines just don't really exist. There are, there are some exceptions, but they're kind of few and far between and the real quality is typically on that lower production end. So some of the best wines that I'm tasting regularly aren't really being seen by other people because they just don't, they're just not enough of them. Uh, and so it's an interesting situation where I think when people do taste the wines, they really do kind of un- un- understand that there's something special going on here. Um, you know, what Santa Barbara really is a leader on these days is making uh, a style of wine that I've come to like a lot, which is kind of a lighter, brighter, acid driven, energetic style of wine versus the kind of really rich, unctuous stuff that you get out of, uh, Napa and Paso Robles and places like that, which are also can be delicious. Uh, but the, you know, the, what, what, what happens here is that because there's such a cool coastal influence, even into the deeper parts of the of the valleys, um, you know, it's still getting really cold at night. So you're really capturing freshness here better than you really can in most other places. So um, a lot of the wines are a little bit more, you could say European in style, but they still have plenty of that California sunshine effect. Um, and people, it's it is, people are surprised just to look at the data to see how cold it is here actually compared to almost anywhere in the state. It's colder here than it is in Sonoma. Most of the time it's colder here than it is in Mendocino, just because those mountains open right onto the ocean, you know, the valleys just suck up that ocean air. So obviously it does get warm in the summertime from time to time, but still that warmth period is kind of a small part of the day. You know, you're, you're dealing with you know, fog in the morning and wind by the early afternoon. So um, you got to wear your jacket, uh, if you're in the Santa Rita Hills, you're wearing your jacket in the deepest of summer oftentimes because it's, it's still cold. So um, that's really surprising to everybody. Cause people think, Oh, Southern California must be, it must be warm. Um, and the reality is that it's, it's really not that warm at all. So um, anyway, so those, I think those fresh styles are something that's, that's, you know, being kind of mastered here. Um, and it's, and it's a style that's a lot more, uh, I think kind of older world and, and European. And, um, and I think when people appreciate that and, 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 you often, I find that people, critics, and psalms and people in the wine industry, kind of start to appreciate that style before the general public. Uh, but the general public's coming around too, and then really getting into it as well. So, I think it's only on the up and up here. Um, there are challenges, of course, but but overall, wine style wise, um, you know, there's a lot of a lot of good energy, and there's a lot of creativity. There's a, there's a good amount of younger people involved. Um, land's a little too expensive now, but for a while. It was still there was still a culture here that really allowed younger people and supported younger people in these smaller brands, which is where I think you see a lot of, um, you know, creative growth, which is exciting.
0: Yeah, we'll talk about that in a second. I I think it's helpful for those who um, haven't been to Santa Barbara, haven't been to Santa Barbara recently, that there's kind of a blanket Santa Barbara or Santa Barbara County, but but the wine region is actually like several micro-regions. And maybe can you just, you started to, you know, you described the mountains and their unique orientation, but can you also kind of break down the different um, sure. micro-regions that make up Santa Barbara County wine?
1: Right. So uh, in, in, in the beginning, there was originally the Santa Maria Valley, uh, which which still very much exists, and then the, the San Ynez Valley was kind of the other big chunk. And then within the Santa Ynez Valley, that's where you see a lot of these real differences as you go from, from the coast inland. And so what started to happen were these different uh, Appalachians or, or American viticultural areas, AVAs started to be carved out by kind of the late nineties. And so right now you have on the far West end toward Lompoc, you have the Santa Rita Hills. So that's kind of world famous, sometimes more famous than the name Santa Barbara itself uh, for Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, really kind of world renowned already. Um, Then as you come in, you get to uh, an area um, that's between essentially uh, kind of Buellton, Los Olivos, and Solvang. There's this canyon. It's a pretty small area, but it's called Ballard Canyon. And that's considered like uh, the Goldilocks zone for Syrah and other Rhone grapes um, because it still gets a little bit of that cool climate influence because it's still fairly close to the coast, but it's also much warmer than the Santa Rita Hills. So um, that's the first, they like to say, and I, I haven't seen any evidence otherwise, that it was the first Appalachian Uh, created in America specifically for Syrah and other Rhone grapes. Um, So that's Ballard Canyon. Then as you move inland a little bit more, uh, one of the newer appellations that was created is called the Los Livos District, which is basically this big kind of alluvial fan between Ballard Canyon uh, and what is called Happy Canyon, which I'll get to in a second on on the eastern end. Um, That includes the towns of uh, Los Livos, Solvang, Ballard, uh, San Inez. So it's actually it's a fairly large area and it was kind of a, it was a bit of a fill in the gap area. But at the same time, it, it has very similar soils and a similar uh, climate um, throughout that area. It's actually a very distinctive kind of spot, even though it was one of the last ones to be added. And then to the east of that, as you get deeper into these canyons where I said it was you know warmer and warmer, you have Happy Canyon of Santa Barbara. And so that is where um, you see most of the Cabernet, Sauvignon Blanc, Merlot, uh, Cab Franc, all the Bordeaux varieties tend to be on pretty large estates uh, back there. And then there's also a proposal right now for Alisos Canyon, which is a tiny little um, canyon along Alisos Canyon Road uh, by the town of Los Alamos. Uh, And that's, there's a lot of, it's mostly Rhone grapes there, Syrah, uh, Grenache, things like that. There's also a proposal in the works uh, for a appellation that would include what's generally known as Fox and Canyon. They probably would not call it Fox and Canyon because the winery Fox and has that name already. And that gets a little political. So they're trying to, from what last I heard is they're trying to come up with a name that everyone can be happy with. And so that would be, that would be Fox and Canyon, that area. Um, And so those, I think those are all the ones I've got. And then, and then there are, you know, occasionally like weird little vineyards that pop up uh, in other parts of the, of the County um, there are some that are actually west of the Santa Rita Hills, um, like in the Savada Canyon area. That so it's actually more coastal than the Santa Rita Hills, which is which is kind of crazy. Um, and so those are kind of the main ones. There's been talk about doing like a Santa Maria Bench appellation, um, but we're almost you know our map is almost completely um, cut up at this point. So uh, it's the, so those are the general the general regions.
0: Um and. Um... Is Santa Ynez Valley its own AVA?
1: So, yeah. So Santa Ynez Valley is its own AVA and remains that way, except most of it now is cut up into these other appellations. So as a winemaker, you have a choice. Uh, you, can always, you can always appellate up. So you can always say this is, I mean, you could go all the way to America. You could say this is American wine, or you could say this is Californian wine, or you can go to your county level, or you can go to the, the, the broader Central Coast level for around here. Or then you can go down to your county, or then you could go down to uh, San Valley, or you could go down to Los Olivos District, so long as your grapes are indeed from these places. Um, so some people will make uh, blends of grapes that are from, say, they've got some from Happy Canyon and some from Los Olivos, and maybe even some from Santa Rita Hills. You blend those together, you could still call that the San Ynez Valley AVA. Um, and so that you see it much less uh, as time goes on because there's these all these other sub AVAs now. Um, uh, but yeah, they're, they're saying that Valley AVA does still exist. It's just something you're seeing less and less because people tend to be more specific. You know, people here get so specific, they get down to, um, you know, obviously single vineyard, uh, bottlings are very common. And then you even see single block, uh, bottling. So basically people say, you know, not only is this from say Bien Decido vineyard, it's from the U block of Bien Decido vineyard. So they're just getting very, very specific about where these grapes are coming from, Um, which is pretty cool because then you can kind of, you know, see how they're different than another block or another vineyard. So, Um, but yes, it does exist. It just doesn't use much.
0: I see. And so who are some of the established players that people may have heard of that, that kind of come from these different AVAs and, and are there also some uh, exciting new upstarts that you, or new Vintners that you want to give a shout out to?
1: Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot going on right now with, with, uh, I mean, I honestly, I feel like there's almost too many brands out there, too many wines out there. There's going to be kind of a, like a shakedown at some point because there's just so much wine out there right now. Um, uh, but some of the main players, if you, if you look at the Santa Rita Hills, you mentioned Richard Sanford. So Richard Sanford and Michael Benedict in 1971 planted the Sanford and Benedict, what became the Sanford and Benedict vineyard. They're the ones that figured out, Hey, you know, we could grow Pinot here because no one thought you could grow Pinot in, in Southern California. And so they were like, no, you know, the temperatures make sense. Soils make sense, and they, and they planted Sanford and Benedict Vineyard, which is now owned by Sanford Winery, which Richard Sanford is no longer a part of, um, but it is still considered one of the best vineyards around. Not only were they smart about where the pick it, I think they got really lucky too. It's Even compared to all the vineyards that have popped up around it, it is a really special place. The soil is like an old kind of a landslide that, that really doesn't happen too much around there, so it makes for some really compelling wine. And so Richard Sanford is now uh, connected to a brand called Almarosa, uh, and he's still very much an active, uh, player in the industry. He actually wrote the forward to, to our book. So we're really thankful to him for that. Um, also in the Santa Rita Hills, you have names that have been there a while, like Babcock, uh, still making some really fun, interesting, um, and sometimes, you know, avant-garde wines even uh, alongside his normal range of, of Pinots and Chardonnays and syrahs. Um, Melville has been really exciting in recent years. Uh, for many years, Greg Brewer was the winemaker there, but now, uh, Chad Melville has come back to the the family fold and is is running the the winemaking there. And those are really, uh, I think, kind of classic wines for this region, which is to say that they're very fresh uh, and even almost a little bit herbal. But then they have, you know, kind of this bright, you know, California fruit quality as well. So those are quite delicious these days. Um, Justin uh, Willett, who owns a brand called Tyler, which is his middle name, he actually bought some property. He's a younger guy. Uh, that is getting a lot of critical acclaim around the world. He's actually partnering with um, some Burgundian uh, winemakers who have come out and looked at the Santa Rita Hills. And you know, when they, when people from Burgundy come and look at the Santa Rita Hills, they're kind of their minds a little bit blown because of the natural pHs and other chemistries that are coming in are, are kind of like ideal, but you can't even achieve them in Burgundy. So um, you, you're starting to see some French uh, money start to invest um, invest here. There's also an interesting. This is a bit of an aside, but there's an interesting um, theory that because of how close we are to the coast, as climate change becomes more of an issue for vineyards, especially in continental Europe, where they're going to feel the the heat a lot more, people think that this coastal influence that we have in Santa Barbara County will be will be a little bit more moderating. So we may not see as much of a change uh, when it comes to raising you know rising temperatures as as they might in other parts of Europe. So there's some there's some interest in investing here. Uh, as you go inland, um, Ballard Canyon, uh, Stoltman, is Stoltman family is kind of the big player there. There's a few others. Roussac is there. Uh, there's not many, like, tasting rooms there. They're, they're mostly just vineyards, and their tasting rooms are elsewhere. Uh, but Stoltman is really doing a lot of interesting stuff, both uh, more on the classic uh, Syrah styles of wine, but he's doing a lot of, like, uh, you know, uh, no-sulfur, kind of natural-leaning wine styles that are that are pretty interesting. Um, so he's fun to watch both kind of from a classic and a, and a more avant-garde or creative label. Um, and so then what else is there? There's If you get into Los Olivos' district, Fred Brander is kind of one of the pioneers of that area, and he's the one that really pushed for this district to be created. He makes something like 16 different Sauvignon Blancs, but he also makes some, some cabs and Merlots. He's a really well-known name. Uh, and as you get into Happy Canyon, you have names like the Grissini Family Vineyard. Um, Happy Canyon Vineyard is a vineyard back there. And Star Lane Vineyard is also uh, back there, one of the most beautiful properties I've ever seen in my life, anywhere in the world. It uh, backs up in these kind of undulating vines, back up to Figueroa Mountain that's just framed by this huge mountain. There's a beautiful winery there. Um, unfortunately, all off limits to the public, uh, but a really amazing spot. And then as you get into Santa Maria Valley, which is uh, north of the San Valley, and a much wider mouth valley. So there's less, it's it's, the whole valley is pretty cool. There's less reason to kind of chop it up into these warmer districts. So it's still mostly known as the entire thing is known as the Santa Maria Valley. Um, You have the Vienicito vineyard, which is the most vineyard designated vineyard in the world, they say, which means that more people, more winemakers buy grapes from there and then put the name of that vineyard on their label than they do from any other vineyard in the world, which is, which is a pretty impressive claim. And again, one I've never seen be refuted. Um, so the Bien Nacido Vineyard, they actually started their own estate brand about a decade ago. So there's a Bien brand that's really quite solid. But then almost any any winemaker that's making Bien Nacido fruit uh, is is making some really amazing wines. Uh, and so you know there's some younger people are getting getting a crack at that. Um, some guys that I've come to know pretty well. They have a label called Scar of the Sea. And they make uh, some really fantastic old vine uh, Chardonnay and Pinot Noir from Bien Nacido. Um, they also make some Syrah from Santa Cruz County out of out of this area, uh, and they've done uh, cider too. Um, so there's you know, there's a lot going on when it comes to you know younger brands. But I would say there's right now there's probably almost 200 wineries in Santa Barbara County, and then there's probably. I don't know two to three times that many brands that come out of here because you know many wineries will make multiple brands under the same roof uh, and just you know for different price points or different reasons. So I mean there's there's kind of a lot and and even if you just go to Los Olivos, there's 50 tasting rooms in this tiny little you know four block town of Los Olivos alone. There's 25 tasting rooms in downtown Santa Barbara right now. Uh, so you well, know, there's well that's kind of what an I was going uh, to yeah, ask
0: yeah. you, Matt. So if you're if you're coming if if you're 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 uh, taste buds are are uh, intrigued by these uh, vivid descriptions what are your top tips for navigating like more than 200 wineries like do you do what do you recommend to people they do especially if they just have a weekend to visit
1: you know if i would say you know i mean first of all the the city of santa barbara is is an amazing place to visit no matter what so i almost feel like as much as i would like to say just go to the vineyards and hang out there i think be remiss to not suggest at least spending one night in downtown Santa Barbara because our restaurant scene is exploding right now. Um, there's, like I said, two dozen places to taste wine uh, right now. The kind of the concentration is in a is in a neighborhood called the Funk Zone, um, which I think is something that Julia probably would have really <laughs> enjoyed. Um, but it's you know there's like 20 tasting rooms right there, and so you could spend a whole afternoon hitting those tasting rooms and then walk to somewhere for for dinner. Um, There's plenty of places to eat in that area. Uh, and so then you can do that for one day. And maybe the next day you head up to the valley and you, uh, you know, maybe do a proper tour. I, I have a number of friends who run uh, tour companies and really they are, if you pick the right tour company, they're going to give you kind of the best insight into how this whole region works. They drive you around uh, and they'll take you to, you can usually kind of, you know, discuss which places you want to go, but they'll take you to estate wineries where you cannot really, get to unless you go on a tour or set up an appointment in advance Um, and so then you'll get you know two to three you know more than three wineries in a day it kind of gets a little bit messy but um, you know I think two to three is a good a good amount of time usually there'll be lunch at one of them and then you get to really usually talk with the winemaker or at least someone from the winemaking team or wine growing team you get to tour the property extensively you might get to do some barrel tasting you get you get a real feel for What's happening? And usually, you hit up a few of these different uh, appellations that I've mentioned too. You're not just in one place because they're all pretty close together. Uh, and then maybe if you had a third day, you know, stay the night in the valley and then and then check out Los Olivos for a day or Solvang because because they have multiple tasting rooms in those places. They're not on the states. They're you know just little little rooms in in these towns. But you could hit a couple of those up, have some lunch, have some dinner, and either stay another night or or even get out of town uh, that afternoon. Um, and so. That would be a really complete experience. You might be a little bit sick of wine, but yeah, to the whole thing. But we also have breweries and uh, distilleries and cideries and other things that are non-alcohol related to do too. Whether it's riding horses or taking a glider ride or going and gambling at the Schumach Casino, perhaps,
0: <laughs> or going to the beach, even,
1: or going to the beach. Yes, or taking hikes. We have, you know, the great thing about Santa Barbara. Is that the mountains just drop straight into the beach? So we have both, you know, stunning kind of mountain hikes and mountain views, uh, as well as you know some of the prettier beaches uh, anywhere.
0: All right, we're going to take a break, and hopefully, we've wet your appetite enough that you will enjoy talking about the highlights of the Santa Barbara culinary experience coming up March 13 to 15, 2020. Where else but in Santa Barbara? Matt's going to fill us in. Stay with us. I'm Ethan Frisch, co-host of Food, and co-founder of Burlap and Barrel, a public benefit corporation working directly with smallholder spice farmers around the world to source unique, beautiful spices for professional chefs and home cooks. We set our partner farmers up to export their own crops for the first time, and they get access to a whole new market here in the U.S., and we get access to spices that other companies can't source. We're honored to work with restaurants including Eleven Madison Park, Blue Hill, and Chez Panisse, as well as thousands of home cooks across the country visit us at burlapandbarrel.com. Welcome back. We're talking to journalist and wine expert, Matt Ketman, about all things Santa Barbara wine and the upcoming Santa Barbara culinary experience. So Matt, tell us, what is the Santa Barbara culinary experience and, and how does a Santa Barbara wine feature in the mix?
1: So, the Santa Barbara Culinary Experience is an offshoot of of the Julia Child Foundation, and there was something that was done a few years ago that they did at the Bacara a couple um, a couple weekends in a row or a couple of years in a row on the weekend, um, and that that was I think moderately successful, but it, but it sounds like they put it to bed for a while, and now we're bringing it back in in a really big way, uh, in which you know Eric Spivey, who's our chairman, was a good friend of Julia. Uh, and he uh, has organized a pretty strong team. Again, I'm a little biased I'm on the team, but a strong team of kind of um, restaurateurs and journalists, uh, PR people to really kind of bring this event uh, to the high class potential it, it has. Because like I said, the, the, the food scene here is thriving. We're becoming really well known both for our restaurants and our purveyors, whether we're talking uni or the small farms we have around here. Uh, or the fishermen, or the ranchers, um, and so it's a full weekend of events from Friday to Sunday that is, I think we have more than 40 or 50 uh, individual events lined up now, everything from a you know the welcome dinner to kind of fancy high-ticket dinners at San Isidro Ranch, to uh, free options at the Hotel Californian, to things for kids. We have a bunch of kids' cooking classes that are already selling out, um, so there's, there's quite a bit of, of stuff, and I, I was proud to kind of put together the most of the wine, wine programming for the for the event and so the what i focused on was putting together a few um few wine panels that i thought were you know both things i was interested in and, and i think that other people who are way into wine would be interested in. and then also some panels that are more kind of um open to you know people that are getting new to wine, you know more newbies so we, we, i kind of thought about it in two tracks one was kind of like the intro track and one was kind of the expert track so we have uh we have Four of these panels that are, that are going on that I was involved with. Um, one of them is, is Santa Barbara Wine uh, 101, uh, where we have, uh, a, we have a, a winemaker or a wine, winery representative from each of the appellations that I mentioned, and then some. So even some of the appellations that haven't been created yet, we, we got some people from from there. And so they'll all be pouring a wine and talking about it. Uh, and the moderator is uh, Sonia Magdevsky, who's also a, a winemaker and a journalist up in Los Alamos. Um, and all of the, I'm not making, we're not making a big deal about this, but it's interesting to note that all of the panelists are females. Uh, Santa Barbara County has been a leader in um, having, you know, elevating uh, women winemakers, but we don't want to make a big, big deal about it because they don't like to be called women winemakers for obvious reasons. So uh, we're just kind of putting up all these women and letting the uh, audience judge themselves what they, what they think about that. But they're going to be pouring some really excellent wines. And that's kind of our, introductory course where they'll talk about each appellation and you'll get to try a range of white and red wines uh, from that. Um, At the same time, I'm going to intro that panel and then I'm going to run over to uh, the Melville Tasting Room and we're doing a Cool Climate Syrah and Charcuterie panel. So Cool Climate Syrah is is kind of my favorite wine. It's also a a favorite wine of many sommeliers and and wine people. Uh, It's, you know, it basically means Syrah grown in, in cooler areas. And you get these really unique herbal, peppery uh, characteristics, oftentimes very gamey, almost like raw meat flavors out of it, um, which is a lot like what uh, Cote Roti and Cornas, some of these original Syrahs from France, taste like. Um, but in California, a lot of the Syrahs have kind of become riper in style. But these Cool Climate ones, are, I think, are totally fascinating. It's a very divisive wine. People kind of either love it or hate it. Uh, but it pairs perfectly with charcuterie. So we have a couple chefs who make charcuterie here in the, in Santa Barbara County, and they'll be there when we'll be pairing some of that charcuterie with with about five uh, different syrahs. So that should be that should be a lot of fun. Um, then in the afternoon we have two more panels. One of which Doug Marjoram, who's a winemaker here, is running. He's doing a uh, like a GSM uh, blending class. So GSM is a, a Rhone style of wine that's Grenache, Syrah, and Morved. and so he's getting, he's pulling samples of, I think, barrel samples of Grenache, Syrah, and Morbed, and then participants will be able to kind of mess around with with the blends and and see what what they like. So it'll be a real hands-on seminar. And then uh, also in the afternoon, we're having what what I'm calling uh, Pinot Noir through the ages. So we have um, panelists. So representing the 1970s is is Richard Sanford. Adam Tolmach from the Ohio Vineyard is, is 1980s. Uh, we have Greg Brewer from Brewer Clifton is representing the 90s we have Justin Tyler or Justin Willett from Tyler Winery representing the 2000s and i got my friend Mikey uh, Guini, who runs uh, Scar of the Sea that i was mentioning he's doing the 2010s he's kind of the, the newest wave um and so they'll all bring a wine hopefully they'll bring some of them will bring some old wines but i'm not sure i can't promise that um, and they'll be talking about uh you know what pinot noir making has, has been like over the last you know 40 50 years how it's emerged, how it's changed, that sort of thing. And so those are the main wine panels. There are some other wine things happening. There's some wine dinners. Um, but those are the those are the ones that I was involved with, and I think are going to be pretty pretty exciting.
0: That is definitely a very appetizing uh, rundown of uh, more things than you, one person might be able to to do. And then you mentioned <laughs> yeah. the, the opening not, uh, night reception, I think, is also a great, um, you know, if you can't, be there for the whole weekend, or just up there Friday evening. Right, that's very wine focused as well. Can you describe what happens on the opening reception?
1: Yeah, that's that's a uh, it's a, a, a big evening where I think we're going to have something like I forget if there's twenty different wineries. So Jackson Family Winery is one of our is one of our main sponsors, and we're very gracious to them for for supporting this evening. So they'll have some of their brands there, but then we also have uh, brands uh, like Lou Dite Winery, Hanada uh, Foxen will be there. Pence will be there. Um, Sonny will be there. Buttonwood will be there. So a lot of these classic names, uh, that, you know, you've, you've heard of, and there's, there's the kind of the new generation, there's the, there's some of the pioneers there. So, um, it'll be a, a really kind of full, full affair, uh, with all these different wines. There's also gonna be going to a chef is going to be, uh, making some food for us all. And it's going to be, you know, I think a pretty exciting introduction to, to this, even, to this whole weekend. Uh, And uh, I think you know it's going to leave. It's going to set the right impression. I think for the rest of the the days to come.
0: Yeah, I think that evening is always really special, and I think it's it's kind of a format holdover from, as you mentioned, the original incarnation of the Santa Barbara Food and Wine Weekend that was held at the Bacara Resort and Spa for four years. But I think what we're all really excited about is, as as you mentioned, the the Funk Zone, and that the weekend is going to be much more central and kind of headquartered in downtown Santa Barbara, so right in the mix of everything, but then with events going on kind of across the whole area and really bringing in like a much wider swath of the community and all the exciting things that are going on in the community.
1: Right, yeah, no, we've been really trying hard to make sure that we're, you know, we have a lot of celebrity chefs coming from out of town, but we're also trying hard to make sure that the local chefs feel supported and are, um, you know, having feeling like this is an event for them as well. Um, there's also the, the the after party at Alice Al Ranch, which is in, um, you know, Santa's Valley, that's starting on Sunday night. They're going to have, like, a range of events. So if you wanted to make this, like, almost a full full week of eating and drinking, you, you totally could by spending your last couple nights up in the Valley. And they have a few celebrity chefs that will be cooking up there. Uh, they're, I think they're doing, like, a barbecue kind of workshop. Um, so, you know, it's kind of a you can see how excited people are because other other venues and, and places are trying to kind of get get involved as well so it should have yeah, a lot of momentum not just for this very
0: well-known chef from la little lofeb is doing at a dinner at the alicell Al, and i think the alicell Al is also like a really great sort of santa barbara county kind of feel and institution in in the best possible sense of the word to to experience and like the hotel californian and the funk zone is kind of the new wave of it although it's it's done in that very santa barbara architectural style it's a very sort of cutting edge hotel that's right
1: yeah
0: yeah and so you mentioned the charcuterie and i also wanted to ask you and just veer off wine for a second because i think one of the things i'm excited about that is maybe a little bit newer to Santa Barbara than, than, than wine, which is really becoming much more established, but that whether it's just the agriculture in the region, that it's Southern California, probably the pull of the wine, it's probably all of these things, but there's been this sort of, to me at least, explosion in artisanal producers of various foods or food-related products or even non-food-related products. So could you talk about some of those and some of those that have been, that'll be uh, featured at the culinary experience?
1: Yeah, so I mean, we've seen it all. Kind of goes hand in hand with, I think, really the development of wine country. I've seen this happen in other regions where kind of wine country comes up, and then uh, the food scene kind of follows after. Uh, and so, what you've seen here is, is the growth of of restaurant culture, and then supporting that restaurant culture are these are these artisans and these purveyors who um, have really kind of you know picked up the charge and 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 are working uh, to both raise the animals and then, and then treat them in ways that are that are Pretty fantastic. So, um, you know, there's everything from like Ranches and Julian, which is a um, you know a, a ranch in the kind of the, towards Longhoke that that raises cattle and then they sell you know their beef at the at the farmers market. Um, and then there was uh, the Valley Piggery was uh, is a guy that raises pigs and then and you could get on kind of like a, almost like a CSA type club thing where you could buy you know cuts of, of pork from him. And then where you really start to see the kind of charcuterie happening to me uh, are these. Uh, our restaurants, really. So, you know, one of the best examples is um, Jeff and Janet Olson at Industrial Eats, which is in Buelton. I, I think one of the best restaurants anywhere. Um, very casual. You know, you walk up and you get your number, and they and they bring your food out. But the, but the food's fantastic. A lot of it's wood fired. But Jeff has become a master in making all types of different charcuterie. Just a really creative guy. So he'll be one of the ones that, that, that's at our charcuterie and Syrah tasting. Um, and so he's making fantastic stuff and, and and really kind of um he's open to selling you know kind of anything that that people are people are up to around here and you're starting to see creativity um even from from the ocean so i was just uh, a week ago a week ago today was at um at the cultured abalone which is a abalone growing operation up the gaviota coast a little bit and stephanie mutts who's kind of a fairly well-known uh, urchin diver here a female urchin diver um, she's really made Santa Barbara Sea Urchin uh, super popular around the world, a lot due to her just, you know, going out and, and hitting the pavement and, and being ready to speak about it. Um, she and her team have, and her, her business partner, Harry LaCornick, have figured out that, you know, the, the urchins we eat uh, typically are red urchin, um, but there's also this purple urchin that has really kind of exploded in recent years because their main predator is, is, is missing from the, from the ecosystem at the moment for, for unknown reasons. It's a, it's a starfish that has disappeared and hasn't come back. So these purple urchins kind of make barrens out of the, the kelp forests, and, and they push out some of the red urchins. So anyway, they're not really good uh, in, in from the wild. There's only like one in 20 of the, of the purple urchins have enough meat in them to eat, um, at, you know, as uni, but they've realized that if they take these purple urchins and fatten them up at, um, at this cultured abalone spot, they become extremely tasty, even tastier than the red urchin, and they're actually easy to deal with. So They're creating this entire new market uh, for, for purple urchin, uh, and they've actually their, their main challenge is that they've been too good about it. Now there's too much demand for what they're actually producing. So um, so yeah, you're seeing people that are really thinking outside the box uh, and trying to you know not only make interesting charcuterie and, and artisanal, Stuff, but to actually, you know, look at the ecosystem and say, "Hey, what what's a win win here?" So they, they're they're basically doing this, hoping that it helps with kelp forest regrowth, uh, and then also making this really delicious food that's never really been on the market anywhere before, um, and that's all coming right out of the Santa Barbara waters. So it's it's pretty exciting place to be right now.
0: And yeah, well, I have to ask, what what do you feed a purple sea urchin to fatten it up?
1: So they feed it four different types of kelp. Um, so the, So the abalone farm um, both has a, a kelp harvesting permit to feed the abalone and they also grow a couple of the red types of, of, of kelp um, of seaweed to, to feed them. So it takes about ten weeks sounds like to, to get them from you know kind of uh, not much meat inside to to fatten them up because they're, they are um, they're gorging type animals so they you know they're very opportunistic when food is there, they eat like crazy and then they spawn and that's kind of it. Um, so they realize that actually they love to eat that food super quickly, and so that's why it only takes about ten weeks to to turn them into, you know, pretty delicious little items there. So, um, so yeah, four different types of seaweed basically.
0: Well, and and why don't they? Is that that they're kind of relocating them from where they'd be naturally in the wild to a place with a concentration of food? Is that really the main difference of what they're doing?
1: Uh, yeah, they're taking them out. They're harvesting them from the wild and then taking them onshore to the so the, so the abalone the uh, farm is onshore there's just a bunch of tanks and so they're putting them in these tanks and then and then feeding them this, this seaweed and they've been very there are some other uh operations that are that are trying to do this now but from what i hear those people are using um like pellets and kind of fake food to fatten the urchins and these guys are very um you know conscious about the environment and they didn't want to use fake stuff so they're using real seaweed to fatten them and they're and they're getting you know quite quite outstanding results uh, just this is this project is less than a year old um and it but it's you know, they're already popular in New York, in LA. Um, but they, like I said, their orders are just, are they're too big to, to handle at the moment, because they still only have like six tanks. So they're they're kinda trying to figure out how to expand operations a little bit too.
0: Wow, that's fascinating. I knew about Stephanie and, and what she's doing with the uni, but I had not heard about this. That that sounds very interesting and very exciting, and just one example of all the the different interesting things that are are growing and fascinating about the Santa Barbara County wine and food scene. And so I wanted to also ask you, kind of your as a member of the advisory committee and the fact that you know we've kind of tackled this, let's do a food and wine weekend in Santa Barbara that's bigger and better and super comprehensive. And um, it's a little bit of a big, a mountain to climb but like for you as someone already very you know invested in particularly the wine scene there and as someone who lives there like what do you kind of hope comes out of this inaugural like big food and wine weekend
1: um you know i, I think it just i hope it continues to just shine a light on um you know w- what's happening in santa Barbara, and i hope it shines that light a little more brightly than 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 i mean i think a lot of the people that live here appreciate that some cool stuff is happening and we get a you know a, a decent amount of traffic especially from Los Angeles on the weekends that, that I think people are starting to figure out that this is really a, a thriving food scene but I don't get the sense that you know broadly Santa Barbara is known as as a, a foodie uh you know kind of capital um and I but I think we very much are in that running right now um I mean there are challenges here to the restaurant culture it's hard to labor's a, a constant issue it's hard to find and retain good staff because it's a very transient, um, city uh, housing is extremely expensive. Uh, everything's expensive. So it's hard to get, you know, these not super well-paid positions to, 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 stick around. So we have some challenges, but on the, on the other hand, we have some extremely creative chefs. We have some extremely unique ingredients as I was just explaining. Uh, and we have uh, you a know, really supportive culture from, from the wine community and, and the overall, beverage and, and farming community to really kind of make this happen. I mean, in a lot of ways, you know, farm to table cooking, which is what everyone talks about. I mean, that really has a lot of roots in, in Santa Barbara, where our farmer's market has been, you know, one of the coolest things to do in town for, for decades. And um, so that's, you know, that's something that I think more people should uh, appreciate. And I, and I think this weekend will only help to, you know, kind of ring that bell a little bit louder. Um and hopefully also encourage you know i think it even even chefs who are successful here sometimes it helps to have encouragement or inspiration from other chefs who come to town and do some do some fun stuff and i and i I won't be surprised if there's a lot of um collaborative relationships that emerge out of out of this weekend where maybe some of these you know celebrity chefs from l a um team up with some of our uh local chefs and um and you know kind of go. Do some stuff into the future, so and I also hope obviously it becomes a really successful annual event. I think it has a strong potential to become kind of one of these um you know Santa Barbara Hallmark weekends. you know we have a number of civic festivals which which do quite well and are quite historic, and I think this is the right time of year to to kind of have another one uh and I think we have all of the right tools in place so um hopefully you know hopefully tons of people come out and experience that and uh, and I think it's also imperative for us to be really looking at, you know, price points and making sure we have a range of options for all of the residents of this community, all of the ages, uh, because I think food is exciting for, you know, I mean, I have young kids and they're they're into food, they do cooking stuff, and so I think it's exciting to a wide range of people right now, um, and it should be. I mean, it's how we eat; one <laughs> of the main things we do as humans. So, um, you know, if you can make it exciting and you can look at sustainability. Uh, and you can explore new flavors and, you know, as, as a wine critic, I, I'm constantly in search of something that tastes different or smells different. And, you know, weekends like this are kind of the best way to, to find those things. So, um, you know, I have some pretty high hopes, I guess, for what this could mean for town, but I, I think they're more or less realistic. So hopefully that'll turn out.
0: Well I think that's a great encapsulation of, of the goals of the weekend and I agree with you I think the the beauty and sun and sea reputation of Santa Barbara is well established but it still feels like the the food and wine is you know really well known in Southern California known in California but doesn't sort of get the credit it deserves nationally so that is hopefully something that we will accomplish as well as just supporting the the community so we're really excited Um right. Have you visited Santa Barbara County wine country lately? Do you have a favorite wine or winery from the area? Send us an email or even a voice memo to contact at JuliaChildFoundation.org. Tell us about your recommendations. We'll run them by Matt as well, see what he thinks. After the break, Matt's going to reveal his Julia moment. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment, or how she's inspired them in their career. All right, Matt, it's your turn. What's your Julia Moment?
1: So, I have a kind of a couple. I remember uh watching Julia child in my in my grandmother's house for some reason. I was just thinking about this I'm like you know, I remember watching her somewhere and it was it was definitely uh in my grandmother's house it would be on I think in the afternoons or something and i, and I at that time, I was a little young and was like, "Who is this lady? It's kind of a funny lady, and <laughs> she's cooking uh, but then going forward, um you know two more things: one was that uh we were watching the movie. Julia and Julia when my wife uh went into labor with our first son, so uh that was pretty cool and that was really i think an eye opening movie to revealing um you know what Julia child was like to the mass mass public um, as a, as a person um and so that was I found that to be a fascinating thing and then another kind of the third thing was that a, a good friend of mine uh Abby used to work at the Smithsonian, um and she was involved in putting together julia's um Uh, kitchen exhibit there, or at least refurbishing it or whatever. And so I I went and visited her there one time and she took me to it. And I was struck that uh, not only how cool that is as as an exhibit, but that it's the most visited exhibit at the Smithsonian or something like that. So it made me realize, you know, how big of an impact that Julia Child had. And since then I've read uh, numerous books. I've interviewed some of the people with the foundation and some of the authors that have written about her. And it's, it's just has become, kind of a fascinating life to me and it's also opened me up to reading um you know uh people like mfk fisher and and other 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 writers food writers that i never would have uh really tuned into um if it wasn't for you know being inspired by julia to to go down that road that road so
0: those, those are great. Yeah. No, I, just for technical clarity, it is the most visited exhibit at the American History Museum, which is part of the Smithsonian. I, yeah, I'm not, I don't think we can yet claim that it's the most exhibited visit, <laughs> uh, most visited exhibit at the Smithsonian, but I believe it still is at the American History Museum. Well, those are great, okay, great. connections.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, and, then, and I, I really am remiss, you know, I was in, I've been in Santa Barbara since 95 and then i mean i've been at the newspaper since 99 so i was around when she was around here and i'm, I'm kind of uh, i'm bummed that i never got to interact with her because i hear she was uh quite a quite a person but i but i hear the stories all the time and actually being part of this uh, the advisory board here has been you know really kind of a cool way to, to connect with her um you know even though she's no longer with us um so to hear all the stories and um it, you know it's a cool it's a cool connection.
0: Well, and the genesis of the Santa Barbara Culinary Experience comes from what event could we do to celebrate Julia Child's legacy in Santa Barbara? And the idea was really like, well, let's do an event that Julia would have liked to go to. And so I think the whole idea of the weekend is really channeling her spirit, both her connection to Santa Barbara, and all the things that she loved to enjoy and and promote.
1: Right. No, and I think we've done a pretty good job of pulling that all together. So hopefully the uh... The crowds show up and support what we've developed, and and I'm pretty sure they will. So,
0: Well, thanks for joining us, Matt, to talk about it.
1: My pleasure, Todd. It was a lot of fun.
0: Thanks, everyone, for listening. And uh, take Matt's advice. Come join us for the weekend. Go to sbce.events to check out the lineup for this Santa Barbara Culinary Experience. It's March 13th to 15th, 2020, just in one month's time. And you can purchase tickets directly from the website. You can even attend a live taping of Inside Julia's Kitchen, and you can see Matt in action at the various wine panels he talked about. Those are all on sbce.events, and Matt and I both hope to see you there. To stay on top of breaking news in the wine world and to track the publication of Vines and Vision, the winemakers of Santa Barbara County, keep up with Matt. He's at Matt Ketman on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and Ketman is K-E-T-T-M-A-N-N. We're at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF and I'm at T Tshulkin, T-S-C-H-U-L-K-I-N on Twitter. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends WGBH. Thanks to my co-producer of the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Amanda Wang. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorny. Please give us a review. Really helps new listeners discover the show. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcast. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. This program is powered by
1: Simplecast.
0: Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place